verses 6 through 19. Here Jesus is praying. Jesus lived in intimate fellowship with the Father. And he prayed. And here we have a glimpse into the relationship of the Godhead of the Holy Trinity. John 17, 6 through 19. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know the truth, to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you were sent for us and for our salvation. You were sent to make us holy by your blood. You have given us your name. Our identity is in you. And Lord, may we reflect your identity. May we be a representative of your name towards each other. Remind us, Heavenly Father, that unity is powerful but so is disunity. Disunity is powerful in a destructive way. So guard our hearts and our minds today that we would have humble hearts to receive what you have for us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Jesus understood the vital necessity of unity among his disciples. As baptized believers in Jesus Christ, we are his disciples and unity is vital among us. See, Jesus understood that unity is powerful. It's a powerful force for good. He also understood that disunity is powerful. It's destructive in its nature. Many of you understand that firsthand of how destructive disunity is within the congregation. You understand it. And you understand that it hurts when a congregation is not unified. In the movie To End All Wars, allied troops were 
held as POWs by the Japanese. They were forced to build the Burma Railway, part of which was the bridge over the River Kwai. You're probably familiar with that movie from the 1950s. The Burma Railway was also known as the Death Railway. About 90,000 civilians died and about over 12,000 Allied troops died building this railway for the Japanese. Those who were held as POWs by the Japanese were treated terribly. They were treated worse than animals. It was unbelievable the number of people who died, 25 people in one camp a day, it was said in one of the memoirs called To End All Wars. And as they were treated worse than animals, they began to treat each other as prisoners of war worse than animals. They would steal from each other. They would do whatever they could in order to get themselves ahead or to survive. They were living in, in a, a, a valley of death. And that valley of death caused them to bite and to devour each other. In Ernest Gordon's memoir, To End All Wars, he records this conversation with a fellow prisoner. He sits down with a fellow prisoner who had just been robbed of all that he had, all of the meager possessions that he had from a fellow troop. And Ernest Gordon's friend says these words, the more depraved we become, the more it pleases the Japanese, how they must be gloating over us. And he says, the white man and his civilization, what a pompous fraud. You see, the, the enemy understood the destructive power of disunity within the prisoner of war camp. The enemy knew that if they remain divided, that it would be very difficult, or it would be very easy, I should say, easy to keep them as prisoners. See, the enemy understands, our enemy understands the power of unity, and our enemy understands the power of disunity within the body of Christ. You would think that trained and disciplined allied troops would have behaved better towards one another, that the circumstances would have brought deeper devotion to one another, but they lived in this valley of death. Ernest Gordon wrote, everyone was his own keeper. It was free enterprise at its worst. With all the restraints of morality gone, our captors had promised to reduce us to the level lower than that of any coolie or labor in Asia, and they were succeeding only too well. Jesus understands the vital necessity of unity within the church. So he prays. He prays for our unity. Look at verse 11 of John uh, chapter 17. John 17, 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one, that they will reflect the unity of the Holy Trinity in the way that they interact with each other. But unity is elusive. Unity has been elusive since the time of the fall. When Adam and Eve sinned, their relationship with God and with one another was ruined. Before the fall, they reflected the unity of God towards each other. They lived in perfect fellowship with God, and they lived in perfect fellowship with each other. Because of sin, our natural 
disposition, because of sin, our natural disposition is to be turned in upon ourselves, concerned only about our own desires, with no regard for God and with no regard for other people. The fall has caused us to be completely, to become completely and totally selfish. And today, ruined relationships are the result of the fall. People at odds with people, neighbor fighting neighbor, church member attacking church member. And the lack of unity that we experience in our communities, our families, and our congregations is nothing new. This is the way things have been since humanity fell into sin. And it hurts. It hurts. Especially when disunity enters into the Christian community. It is so damaging. It's damaging because we are to be a reflection of Jesus. We are to reflect Christ to each other. But too often we fail to reflect Jesus. Why is it that we are to reflect Christ to each other? It has something to do with identity. It has to do with who you are as a Christian. What is your identity? Well, looking at John 17, 11, we get a little glimpse into what our, who our, uh, what our identity is. John 17, 11, look at those words. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. What does it mean to be kept in the name of Christ? It means that your identity is in Christ. You see, a person's name gives that person identity. You are kept in Jesus' name. Your identity is in Christ. Now that your identity is in Christ, you're called to be a reflection of Jesus to others. Too often we don't encounter a reflection of Jesus when we come into contact with Christian communities. Sometimes churches can be just as toxic as that prisoner of war camp along the River Kwai. People at odds with each other, even within the church. What do people encounter when they enter our church? Do they encounter a people kept in the name of Jesus, a people living out their identity in Jesus, a reflection of him, or a fractured community? I've seen Maple Park reflecting the love of Jesus. Can we grow more in this? Can we improve? Absolutely. But I believe that Jesus is at work here, working in us and through us. But we still struggle with our default inwardness. Each of us need to be turned up towards God and out towards one another by the working of Jesus Christ in us. And this is why we need grace. This is why we need the gracious work of Jesus. This is why we need Jesus to come to us and to touch us.
and to change us, to transform us. Because none of us are a perfect reflection of Jesus towards each other. Just look back at your week. What has been your reaction towards those that you've come into contact with? Has it always been a reflection of Jesus? If you're like me, it hasn't been. So we need Jesus to come to us and to make us a holy reflection of his. We need Jesus to come to us and to do something in us and for us. This is why Jesus prayed, sanctify them. Sanctify them. He said, sanctify them in the truth. And what is the truth? Your word is truth. Your word is truth. By grace, church, you are sanctified. And by grace, you are being sanctified. What does it mean to be sanctified? This is one of those church words, one of those big theology words. It's not known that well. And it should be known more within the church. To be sanctified is this. It is to be made holy. Or it is to be set apart for a holy purpose. To be made holy or to be set apart for a holy purpose. Colossians 1, 21 through 23 puts it this way. Once you were alienated from God... And we're enemies, enemies towards God, and no doubt that enmity with God created enemies with human beings that should not be. You're alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, and now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy, holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Jesus said it this way, for them I sanctify myself or I set myself apart for a holy task, which is to go to the cross and there shed my blood that they too may be truly sanctified. By grace, through faith in what Jesus did upon the cross and the shedding of his blood, you are sanctified. You have been made holy. When God sees you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees this holiness which has been imparted to you as a free gift of his grace. Your sins are washed away. When God sees you, he can only see the holiness and the righteousness of Jesus. But you're still a work in progress, and so am I. We're all a work in progress. Your experience as a Christian is still marred by sin. You don't live out your new sanctified identity all the time. You still experience animosity, and you have unforgiveness that you harbor in your hearts, and these are the things that fracture re your relationships with other people. You're a work in progress. You need to grow in obedience to Jesus as a holy reflection of who he is. So how do we, how do we grow to reflect Christ better? I only have one answer, and it's grace. 
Primarily, it's God working his grace in us through his word. This is his primary means or instrument of grace given to us. You see, God works through his word. He works. He does a powerful work in his word to progressively transform you into a person that lives as a reflection of Jesus. Bottom line, the word of God brings us closer to Jesus. And as we grow closer to Jesus, we reflect his nature more and more towards one another. And what a powerful transformation it is. Remember that POW camp where depravity had taken over? Allied troops treating each other worse than animals. Eventually, a change begin, began to, to happen within the camp, and that change came through the Word of God. The Word of God was read and taught in the camp, and it brought transformation. A church was begun in the camp. And Ernest Gordon goes on to write this. He says, I do not know when the church in Chengai was built. Perhaps built is not the right word, for it was no more than a clearing in the jungle. It had for a roof the great vault of the firmament and for its walls the forest of bamboo. There were no doors. One could enter at any point. It was all door. It was hard to know when one was in church or when one was not. I remember watching two POWs carrying a load of bamboo through the neighborhood. As they were jogging along, one of them shouted to the other, Take your hat off, Jock. You're in the house of God. The church was a fellowship of those who came in freedom and love to acknowledge their weakness, to seek a presence, and to pray for their fellows. The confession of Jesus Christ as Lord was the only requirement for membership. And listen to this, the church was made up of Methodists, Baptists, Episcopalians, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, and former agnostics. Two Chinese were among those baptized. Some British troops had found them still alive after a massacre on one of the beaches by the Japanese. The soldiers brought them back to Chiang dressed them in British uniforms, and equipped them with fictitious identities. They were absorbed into the life of the camp and had come on with us to Chiang here they were so impressed by what they had seen and heard from the example of their Christian fellows that they asked to be admitted into the Christian faith. Hmm. How sweet fellowship and unity is. It's a reflection of Jesus and people are attracted to us. So far as many of us could see, there were three definitions of the church. There was the church uh, composed of laws, Practices, pews, pulpits, stones, and steeples. The church adorned with the paraphernalia of state. Then there was the church composed of creeds and catechisms, where it was identified only by words. Finally, there was the church of the Spirit, called out of the world to exist in it by reason of its joyful response to the initiative of God's love. Such a church had the atmosphere not of law court, nor of classroom, but of divine unity. It existed wherever Christ's love burned in the heart of man. The physical temple and the doctrinal affirmation are both necessary to the fullness of the church, but both are dead without the church that is a communion, the fellowship of God's people. 
Ours was the church of the Spirit. It was not hidden in a corner nor often the periphery. It was the throbbing heart of the camp giving life to it and transforming it from a mass of individuals into a community. From the church we received the inspiration that made life possible, the inbreathing of the Holy Spirit that enabled men to live better lives, to create improvements for the good of others, and to make kind neighbors. The fruits were in evidence around us, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, and faith. At one end of the clearing, prayerful hands had fashioned a holy table of bamboo on which was placed a cross and a lamp. The cross was a simple carved piece of wood. The lamp, a tin can with the shoelaces, a wick. A roof of palm protected them from the elements. These symbols were meaningful ones to us. The holy table reminded us of the fellowship to which we belonged, a fellowship made possible by the sacrifice of him who is Lord of the church and by those who follow him as apostles and disciples. Around the common table we gathered and visible evidence of his presence with us to heal, restore, and save. The cross pointed us to our Heavenly Father and at the same time reached out its arms to include us all in an expression of love that will never let go. As the lamp flickered in the tropical darkness to give us the only light we had for our service, it reminded us of the life that is the light of men, the true light that enlightens every man who comes into the world, the light that never fails. I first became aware of the existence of the church in Chiang Kai when the Reverend Alfred Webb invited me to help him. Padre Webb, a chaplain, had recently arrived from another camp. He had begun a most effective ministry, quickly establishing himself as a wise and kindly pastor to an ever-increasing congregation. He suggested that I might preach once in a while. The Sunday evening service came when I was to preach my first sermon. There were no homiletic aids of any kind, but there was the living word, the living word. God's testimony in the Bible and his word for our condition. Shortly before the service was to begin, Bill McLean handed me his Bible. It was open at these words in the 12th chapter of St. Luke. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious how or what you are to answer or what you are to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Thus strengthened, I found the words. I preached on the parable of the prodigal son. Men came with ready hearts to the services, hearts open to receive the blessings of God alone could give. Days after they would approach me to discuss a point of interest, the nature of their question made it plain to me that the basic spiritual needs are common to all men. Every evening was a service was held in which prayers were said for the sick, for those at home, for our daily needs. We prayed for guidance and for strength to face the ordeals that lay ahead. We needed the gift of a tranquil spirit so we ask God for an untroubled 
sleep. And he goes on to share about the night terrors that were so common. It was to calm ourselves in the face of experiences like this, that we join together in the closing prayer of the evening. Ah, Lord, support us all the day long of this troublesome life until the shadows lengthen and the evening comes and the busy world is hushed and the fever of life is over and our work is done. Then, Lord, in thy mercy, grant us safe lodging, a holy rest and peace at last through Jesus Christ our Lord. We then said the Lord's Prayer. We stumbled over the phrase, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. That was not only because some of us were of Scottish background and used to say debts and debtors, it was because it meant asking for forgiveness for the Japanese. We had learned from the Gospels that Jesus had his enemies just as we had ours. But there was this difference. He loved his enemies. He prayed for them, even as the nails were being hammered through his hands and feet and cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We hated our enemies. We could see how wonderful it was that Jesus forgave in this way. Yet for us to do the same seemed beyond our attainment. The first communion which I attended was memorable. The elements were our daily life. Rice baked into the form of bread and fermented rice water. The solemn words of communion were said, who the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take and eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. We broke the bread as it was passed to us and handed it to our neighbor. The elements were returned to the table, prayer of thanksgiving said, a hymn sung, a blessing given. We slipped quietly away into the singing silence of the night, cherishing as we did so our experiences of the communion of saints. The Holy Spirit had made us one with our neighbors one with those at home, one with the faithful in every land, in every age, one with the disciples. All the while, our own future was unpredictable. We didn't know what the Japanese had in store for us. But whatever happened, we knew that Jesus, our leader, would never fail us. As he had been faithful to his disciples in the first century, he would be faithful to us in the 20th In the words of John Mansfield's play, he is let loose in the world. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today. We do thank you for the unity that we've been given by you. Strengthen our unity. Strengthen our unity as we quiet ourselves before you. And your presence with humble hearts before your word and before your table with brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that all animosity would be healed. I pray that all the wounds of disunity within this congregation would be healed. Lord, may we reflect your nature through your work 
in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pray that the, all right.